0: and a hundred dollar discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now here's the episode. Welcome to episode 128 of the Deeper Christian podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, we are going to be listening to part two of Stephen Manley's sermon, Jesus, the Conquering Messiah. Let's dive in. Well, as this episode goes live, I will be in Israel. And I'm taking a group of 30 people with me, and we're just going to be studying God's word as we walk the land where it took place. Now, I'll give a review of that once I get back into town. So while I'm gone, we've been walking through a sermon series by my good friend and mentor, Stephen Manley, called Jesus, the Conquering Messiah. Now, this three-part series comes from Matthew chapter 27, and we're about to enter into part two. Well, if you'd like to listen to part one, go back an episode, episode 127, and you can find that message there. But without further ado, here is Stephen Manley preaching the sermon, Jesus, the Conquering Messiah, part two.
1: Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly.
2: Look
1: at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus Jesus into the predatorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his brow and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, put his clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Verse 41, likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and the elders said he saved others himself. He cannot save if he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him for, he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. There was no question at all that the very heartbeat of the trial of Jesus Christ before Pilate is the issue of kingship. You understand, according to chapter 27, verse 1, that the morning has come. They have had an all-night trial. That is, in the wee hours of the morning, the Sanhedrin, probably a quorum of them, have met together. And they have gone after Jesus, and they have satisfied themselves with that mock trial. Oh, the accusations against him there all had to do with religious accusations. Now they have meant in the morning to verify what they had done that night. It's the crack of dawn. But you see, they've got to get an accusation that they can bring to Pilate. He doesn't care a thing about their religious accusation. They're going to have to get some kind of accusation that will really get Pilate's attention. What kind of accusation could do that? Only one. Jesus is a king. And the whole heart of the trial, as seen in this passage, as Jesus stands before the governor, Pilate, literally centralizes on this issue of his kingship. You understand we're looking at the whole chapter, chapter 27, and I'm offering you a proposition of truth out of this chapter. It's simply the cross is more than a verification of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. He's doing it in a very unique way. He calls in these testimonies, these witnesses to testify. And it's out of the testimony of enemies and pagans and people who wanted to crucify Jesus that we begin to see these overwhelming truths beginning to emerge out of their testimonies. Oh, truth number one, the righteousness of Christ. We've already talked about that. Tonight we want to talk about the royalty of Christ. The royalty of Christ. You know, of course, that you have to keep in mind constantly the purpose for which Matthew was writing. He was writing to the Jews. That immediately tells you something. That tells you that he has left a lot of material unsaid. A lot of things that he could have put in that would really have helped us, he has left out because they knew the details. He was writing to Jews who understood the culture and the whole setting of the thing. For instance, they understood that the Messiahship concept was intimately linked With this whole idea of kingship. That the Old Testament word for Messiah literally meant to smear or to anoint, which all has to do with kingship stuff. That the kings of Israel had been an overwhelming disappointment to the people. They had been constantly self-willed. They had been constantly steeped in their own desires. They had constantly reached out and grabbed a hold of Israel and literally used Israel for themselves. And the kings had disappointed them. The kings who were to be a shepherd of the people. The kings who were to act in the place of God. The kings who were to roll up their sleeves and be servants of God and the people had literally used Israel for themselves. And constantly they were disappointed in their kings. Ah... That disappointment, you see, had perpetuated this overwhelming desire and hope that burned in the chest of every single Jew. And that would be, oh, somehow, some way, we need a king that's bigger than us, a king that's better than what we've had. We need an ideal king, and he's going to have to be more than man. He's going to have to be the son of God. He's going to have to be a cut above us. He's going to have to be one like unto the seed of David. And they're burned within the chest of every Jew. This burning passion of hope. And it wasn't a hope in a theology. It wasn't a hope in ceremonies. It wasn't a hope in activities. It was a hope in a person. The Messiah person who would be king Jesus is on the scene. But you see, he's a disappointment too. Because they have an overwhelming problem with him. Oh, no problem with his miracles. Divine power flowing. Hey, we love that. That's good. Do another one, Jesus. I'll watch. See, that's no problem. And his ministry, that was no problem. The power of his preaching. And the way he reached out and grabbed a hold of the Old Testament law and pulled it apart and put it back together and made it make sense for the very first time. Hey, they loved that. Powerful preaching. Great ministry. Overwhelming miracles. That was all fine. But there was this this undercurrent of his ministry. There was something. It was almost a tone in his voice. It was. It was something about his whole ministry, including every miracle he did and every message he preached. It was. It was an undercurrent. It was a principle. There was some kind of spiritual principle that was at the very throbbing heartbeat of this Christ that just literally colored every miracle because he kept doing these kind of things and that said, "Don't tell anybody." Like he didn't want anything for himself, you know. And he would do these fantastic miracles like feeding 5,000 with a handful of loaves and a handful of fish. And anybody that could do that, well, forevermore, he could have a string of restaurants across the country and be a millionaire overnight. I mean, why not? But Jesus didn't do any of that kind of stuff, you know. He, was, he didn't have a selfish bone in his body. It was just, it was always for others and pour your life out. And he had this. oh, we've been calling it cross style. That was the principle. And he wasn't just satisfied to have that in his own life. He kept pushing it on everybody else. And he kept haranguing the disciples about, hey, I want you in on it. I want you to die. I want you to lose your life. I want you to give yourself up. And that was the fundamental problem. Now, it wasn't any problem that Jesus wasn't selfish. That was good because that had been the problem with the kings of Israel before. They had been selfish. But the problem with Jesus is he wasn't selfish at all. And see, what we really want is we want a king who will be our king and he won't be selfish towards us, but brother, he'll give it to those Romans. And he'll come down and he'll link arms with us, the ecclesiastical order of the day. And he'll deal with the good people and be our Messiah, not those tax collectors and those harlots. But you see, Jesus wasn't selfish at all. And he wasn't about to smash Rome, nor us. And he wouldn't be isolated to us, the good people. He went to the bad people, too. And see, Matthew in chapter 27 is trying to tell us something. He's trying to say, hey, I think you guys have missed something. Because you see, Jesus, Jesus is an adequate king. And the reason he's an adequate king is because of this cross, this cross style. You see, you think this undermines him. This does not undermine him. This builds him. You don't understand. This does not disqualify him. This qualifies him. This doesn't strike his name out. This writes it in unerasable ink. See, this gives him a throne from which he's going to reign as king. And it's a cross throne. Cross throne. Listen to the testimonies. Testimony number one, the commander. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, the commander, Pilate. Well, who is he? Italian born, middle class family, had a brilliant military career, very successful. In fact, he'd had several positions right there in Judea territory, which is probably how he got the opportunity of being there as governor, because he had all of this experience with the Jews. As governor, he had absolute authority over non-Roman citizens, fifth Roman governor over Judea. Reigned from A.D. 26 to 36. He had done several major blunders. That is, he had antagonized the Jews by doing several things. And there was this cold war. They hated each other. Pilate couldn't stand them. They couldn't stand Pilate. By This time in Jewish history, Rome has taken away the right of execution, and the Jews cannot execute. Now, there were times when mob rule took over, and they stoned somebody to death, like Stephen, for instance. But hey, that was illegal, and the only way you could legally execute someone was to have the Romans do it. And the whole right of life and death hung in the hand of the governor. He had the total right to make the decision. They've come to Pilate with Jesus, crack of dawn, got him out of bed. And they have to come up with an accusation that's going to really get through to Pilate. He doesn't care about their religious differences. If Jesus says he's he, he's your religious leader, we don't care. If you say he blasphemes, I don't care. Hey, the religious issues don't bother Pilate. But we got to find an accusation that gets through to him. And they come saying, hey, Jesus is a king. And that's revolutionary. And you've got to deal with that, Pilate. Oh, read verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Did you note accent? That highlighted in this passage is one question. It's the important question of the hour. It's in bold type, if you please. It's the first question that's asked. Matthew hasn't given any detail of introduction or how's the weather or what's in and how's your family. None of that is going on here. It's just suddenly we're right into the middle of Jesus stands before the governor. He reaches out, grabs him, yanks him into the back room and says, question, are you the king of the Jews? See, this is priority question. This is the issue of the hour, because if this issue isn't true, then there is no case. Everything hangs on this one supreme question. This is the issue. Hasn't changed much, has it? 2,000 years later, we're gathering here. Guess what the supreme question is? Guess what the only thing worth talking about is? Guess what the pressing issue on your life is? Things haven't changed much. Are you king of the Jews, Jesus? Are you king? In my life. That really the question, ladies and gentlemen, is not about habits. It's not about relationships. It's not about tithing. It's not about all the other things that are of little consequence. The supreme, overwhelming, thrusting question and issue is kingship. I'm worried about the evangelical church because I think we got our language old. Twisted up. And what really bothers me is I think it is filled into the holiness movement. You see, we talk in the evangelical church in terms of Savior, Lord. Oh, let Jesus be your Savior. And then we'll talk to you later about, oh, is he your Lord? But ladies and gentlemen, we have never believed that. We can't translate that into holiness thought process. That doesn't translate any way, shape, or form. Well, we don't talk about saved and sanctified, Savior and Lord. No, that doesn't equate. That isn't where we are because we've always known that he is Lord at every point of human life. A Christian experience he is he is Lord at every single encounter you have with him and the Lordship issue is not a sanctified issue the Lordship issue was is a salvation issue and there's no way you can come to Jesus and have a hundred sins and give him 99 of them and get off because you have to surrender all all the time And that the lordship issue is not pushed down the road. Otherwise, what you've got on your hands is, well, he's my savior. Woo, free ticket to the sky. Wow, I get to go and do what I want to anyhow. Hallelujah. That's not where we are at all. For what we're dealing with here is not savior and lord. What we're dealing with here is king. And he cannot be other than he is. And he is solidly king. And he's going to be king of your life all the time. Or he won't be in your life. The issue. Accent. Oh, note. Answered. I think this is interesting because you, do you see that in this passage we're dealing with, this is the only question Jesus would answer. I think that's hilarious. Look at verse 12. And while he was being accused by chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Oh, look at verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him, not one word. Do you see that in this passage there's only one question Jesus would deal with? One issue. See, this is not only the most important issue to you, this is the most important issue to Jesus too. It's the only one He will acknowledge being asked. Significant. Because He knows when this issue of kingship is settled, everything is settled. And He will not deal on any other level. See, I found it very dangerous to pray because Jesus won't stick to the subject. Hey, Lord, I'd like to have a little healing here. Suddenly I'm flat on my back looking full into the face of one who says I'm king. How about it? Well, Lord, it was just a little touch on the flesh. And He won't deal. Well, Lord, I got a little financial problem. Oh, suddenly I'm into the throes of the overwhelming issue. Are you going to let me be king of your life? But God, it's just, you know, a few thousand if you could float down. And He won't deal. Isn't that interesting? Because, you see, there's only one issue he's going to deal with, and that's the issue of kingship. Oh, one other interesting thing about this passage, it's in the context. Accepted. Do you realize that his answer is accepted? I had a hard time with that. See, Pilate has dragged him off off to the side, looked him square in the eye, and said, Hey, number one issue, supreme deal here. Are you a revolutionary? Are you a king? Do you claim to be? That's in a threat, direct threat to Caesar. And if you're a king, I'm down your back. And Jesus turns to him and says, Yes, I am. And what does Pilate do? Starts defending him, trying to get him off. That doesn't fit. Pilate should have said, hey, that settles it for me. Crucify him. Because my Pilate, as insecure as he was and is, listen, hey, something has to happen here. Nail him. But Pilate doesn't do that. Pilate backs off. Pilate tries to get him off. Pilate washes his hands, says it's not of my affair. Pilate won't deal. What's happening here? Well, you haven't got the whole story in Matthew. The other accounts give us some more of the conversation. You know what the conversation was about? The conversation was all about how he's not an earthly king. And when you weed your way through it, what you discover is Pilate felt no threat because Jesus wasn't attempting to overtake Caesar. He was no threat to Caesar. He was no threat to Pilate. Why? Because this is not an earthly kingdom, This is a spiritual deal that's going on. See, this is not just, I want your tithe. This is not just, hey, I want you to do the rules. This is not just, I want to dictate the ceremonies. That's not what this is. I want to conquer you. Internal perspective. I want to dominate your internal flow of attitude. Listen, I I want to get inside of you and begin the inward flow. I want to reign from the inside of your very being. This is not earthly king. This is spiritual dynamics. And what I want to do is I want to take over inside of you. This is an inside job. See, he wants you To join the kingdom. Well, what's the style of this kingdom? Cross style. From the inside out, throw yourself away, deny yourself, lose your life, give yourself up. Jesus is. Call in the testimonies. Commander. Look at the second one. Company. Oh, it's verse 27. You'll note in verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor. Company of soldiers. Who's the people involved here? Oh, soldiers again. Roman soldiers. They're in full control of the occupied territory of Judea. No question about that. But these guys that we're dealing with here in this passage, they're not ordinary soldiers. This is different. You see, there was a special group of soldiers in the New Testament time who were especially trained to guard the emperor. And they were isolated to Rome itself. But then there began to be so, man, so many problems in some of the major cities with some of the governors that they had to turn some of those soldiers loose. And here's a whole garrison of them who have surrounded Pilate now and are his The governor's soldiers, and they are here in assignment in Jerusalem to protect Pilate. You see, they're the elite core of soldiers. Their salaries are better. Their training is better. Their privileges are better. Their terms of services are better. They are better than all the rest. And if you note in verse 27, at the end, the whole garrison gathered around him. Garrison was 600 to a 1,000 of these guys. And they've reached out and grabbed a hold of Jesus, and they've pulled him into the predatorium. It's their territory, the judgment hall. This is their area. They're secure. Can you imagine this? None, Not one of them has his hand on his sword, looking over his shoulder, wondering what's going to happen. There is no threat here. This is their territory, their place, 600 to a 1,000 of them, and only one man. Relax, guys. Have a good time. Look at the platform. The platform that they're announcing. Oh, it's found at the end of verse 29. It's not really theirs, you understand. They picked it up from the Jews. It's hail king of the Jews. And it's a mockery. And the whole platform is set up in that one statement. Do you understand that from verse 27 down through verse 31, the whole scene revolves around kingly stuff? Interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe, king stuff, scarlet robe on him. Then they had twisted a crown of thorns, crown of thorns. King stuff. They put it on his head, and he read in his white hand, right hand scepter, king stuff. They bowed the knee before him, king stuff. And they mocked him, saying, "Hail, king of the Jews, king stuff." See, the whole section just literally revolves around the kingly business, and they caught the message from the Jews. But note, there's a principle that runs through all of this. See, they did not know. They did not know what they were saying. But they were literally expressing it like Jesus has been expressing it. Jesus has been yelling it. Jesus has been screaming it. Jesus has been demonstrating it. And it's all wrapped up in this cross style. And now the soldiers have picked up on it. And they're doing it exactly like Jesus would do it. Remember Palm Sunday? The king has come to present himself to Jerusalem. He doesn't come riding in one of those little boxes carried on the shoulders of men. He doesn't come in a fancy chariot. He doesn't come on a white steed. How does he come? He comes on a donkey. Symbol of
2: servanthood.
1: He comes wearing the sandals of the people. He comes with the rough hands of a, of a servant. He comes with the philosophy of how can I pour my life out? He comes with the message that the one who is greatest should be the one who serves the most. See, the soldiers have picked up on it. They've caught it. And now his death, oh, this is ironic, his death is going to parallel his birth. What was his birth? Oh, a king is born. And where is the king born? Stable, midst of the cows, the smell of manure. No place else to be. A king born here? Yes. Now the same king is going to die like he was born. Crown of thorns, not gold-plated. weed scepter, Not sterling silver. A throne. Yes, a throne, A cross throne. And do you see that Matthew's reached out and grabbed a hold of us and he's pulled us right back to the fundamental that this Jesus is unlike any king you've ever seen in your life. Why is he so different? Because, ladies and gentlemen, he is a king with a cross-style kingdom. He is a king where life comes out of death. He is king of a kingdom where the way to win is to lose. He is king of the kingdom where he calls you to throw your life away as he has done. He is king of the kingdom that will not tolerate
2: self-living. Because this is his style. The style of a king. Incredible.
1: Oh, one more witness. There's the commander, the governor. There's the company, the soldiers. But there are the chief priests. Look at verse 41. Interesting phrase in verse 41. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders. Now, Matthew consistently through his book uses that phrase, chief priests, scribes, and elders. And that always refers to Sanhedrin because that makes up the Sanhedrin. Seventy men who are in the ruling body of Israel. They are the dignitaries. They are the boys that wear the double-breasted suits. the ruling body of Israel. They're going to testify. Oh, good. What we're going to get here is a religious perspective. Hey, we've had the pagan perspective. We've got... Pilate, the governor, he told us what he thinks, and we got the soldiers who were definitely out of it. They told us what they think. But what do the people of God say? What do the ones who have been following carefully the messianic promises have to say? What do the boys who have been keeping the dream alive inside that, oh, a king is coming, what do they have to say? Let's hear from them. Well, I want to propose to you, it's a restricted perspective that they give. Now, you realize in verse 41 and 42, the scene is at the cross scene. You keep in, keep in mind the scene. Three men are dying. One, a thief on this side, a thief on this side, and the middle cross, you understand. And where is all the mocking? Where is all of it coming from the crowd? And who are they mocking? It's all centralized on this middle cross. Look at verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. This is the general populace, you understand. There's always these skeptics, negative people who are hanging around doing that kind of thing, poking fun, because they have little fun in their lives. But verse 41 again. The chief priest, the scribes, the elders. They've joined in on this. The dignitaries, they're getting in on this. And they, what are they saying? They don't know really what they're saying. That is, there is content to their mockery that they don't even know about, ladies and gentlemen. They haven't figured it out themselves. You know what they call him. Look at this, verse 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save if he is king of Israel. Do you know that every other place he's called king of the Jews? Except here. Do you know that if you search Matthew, Mark, Luke, you will only find one time in one setting where he's called king of Israel. And it's this setting. That's recorded here and in Mark. And it's by the Sanhedrin that look him square in the eye as he hangs on a cross and says, King of Israel. Why the change? Why have we gone from King of the Jews to King of Israel? Oh, there might be several, several answers. But one might be the Jew. The term Jew was a non-Jew term. If you were a Roman and you were talking about those people, you would talk about them in terms of Jews. So obviously when the, when the soldiers come and say, King of the Jews, that would be their language. When Pilate says, King of the Jews, that would be his language. But when if you're an Israelite and you're talking about us, you use the Israelite term. That might be an explanation. I think it's deeper than that. I think it's much deeper. You see, the word Jew has to do with nation, nationality race but the term israel ladies and gentlemen has to do the undercurrent of it is religious in fact if you really get down to it and fine tune it and nail it against the wall it comes out to be the people of god israel the people of god So they have in turn have said, Jesus, if you really are king of the people of God. See, they don't know what they're saying. They are saying, Jesus, come down from the cross. And be our king. If you come down from the cross, you will be king of the people of God. If you hang there, you'll not be king of the people of God. We are going to restrict you and we're going to restrict our king to this crossless Messiah. We want a king who's our king. Oh, we talked about it earlier, didn't we? We want a king who's a king of us. We don't want a king who's going to die on a cross and redeem an entire world. We want a king who's going to come and help us with our problems and our need and, and, and the significance of our life because we're the chosen one and we are going to restrict you, Jesus, to right here. But God has never catered, ladies and gentlemen, to narrow-minded little groups who want to isolate
2: Him. Never.
1: Do you see that God is doing a brand new thing
2: in this day? That here are the
1: Israelites who've got God all boxed up and have it all just the way they want it and have the view just like they desire it and have just how he's supposed to fit in. And he comes and he doesn't fit into that and he's saying, I want to do a brand new thing But we want you to be isolated to us, not help Rome. But I'm going to redeem you and Rome. We don't want that. We want you centralized on our problems and our needs. And Jesus says, I'm here to do a brand new thing. Why don't you plug into a new thing that God is doing and get in on the redemption of an entire world? we live in a world where our job we don't like it we live in a world where our home we got problems we live in a world where the finances aren't the way we'd like them we live in a world where there's crime on the streets we live in a world where we got problems with our children. We live in a world where we have relationship problems with each other. We live in our little world and we are quick, ladies and gentlemen, to call upon a God to come and to focus on our problems and to help us with our need. And oh God, would you get in on my financial problems? And will you come and help me with this? And will you meet the need of my family? And oh God, I've got this problem. And oh God, I've got this problem. But don't you see? He is busy! What's he busy with? He's hanging on a cross by dying for an entire world. And he isn't going to come and concentrate on your little problem. Oh, he's not. That's not what I've always been taught. I've always been taught that God was concerned about the slightest need I have. He is. He is. But he's concerned about your needs when you cease to focus on them. And as long as your whole life is focused right here on your little need, He is constantly calling you, lift up your eyes and see what's happening. Don't you know? God is trying to do a new thing in our day. And He doesn't want to just solve your little problem. And He doesn't want to just meet your little need down at your home. And He doesn't just want to make you feel better. Don't you understand what He's wanting to do? He's wanting to reach out and literally engulf this entire society. He's literally wanting to sweep this whole world into the kingdom. And He's bleeding and dying for that. And He's calling you out of the concentration on your little prowler into something bigger than yourself until you see as he sees. And then somehow in the middle of all of that, your little needs are answered. Whenever there is silence around me by day or by night, I'm startled by a cry. It came down from the cross. The first time I heard it, I went out and I found a man in the throes of crucifixion. I couldn't stand it. I said, take you down from the cross. And I started to take the nails out of his hands and out of his feet. And he yelled at me and said, don't take me down. For I cannot be taken down until every man, every woman, every boy, every girl come together to take me down. But I said, I cannot bear to hear you cry. What shall I do? He said, Go about the world. Tell everyone you meet there's a man
2: on a cross,
1: Jesus. You know us, Jesus, we are so problem-centered. Our problems. What would happen tonight if we would lift our sight and see you with the fullest expression of your style? And know that you did not die to solve my little problems. You died to redeem a world, and you're calling me to get in on that. Well what happened, Jesus, if we would call you, if we would quit calling you to get off your cross and come down here and meet our little need, and we would say, I'm gonna join you. and we would become a part of the flowing, redemptive
2: power of God.
1: Please, God, don't listen to our whimpering. Don't listen to our whining, please. Oh God, don't listen to us, please. Keep calling us beyond ourselves. Please God have mercy on us and call us beyond our little differences and beyond our little problems and beyond our little needs and call us to cross style that commands our total system and makes our problems seem insignificant. Call us to something bigger than ourselves until we plug into the redemption of a world and we find ourselves losing our lives. You've got people here tonight, God, no doubt that you want to call to full-time Christian service. They're so focused on their little needs, they have a hard time responding. You've got people here tonight! You've been trying to get them to pour their lives out to their world and their neighbors. There's people that they should be touching, but they're so focused on their little that they never see the big picture of cross style. And what you want to do, don't let us replay the scene of an Israel that wants a national God who will help us. May we embrace a suffering Jesus who wants to shake the world. Call us again tonight, we pray thee. It's about. If you get out of your seat tonight, if you come, you kneel at this altar. It will not be to seek answers. It will be to give yourself away. It will not be to find solutions. Oh, God, solve my problem. It will be to enlist. It will not be to, oh, God, make me feel better. It will be, oh, God, kingly messiah. Take me. Spill me out. You've used him. He wants you available to be used. Will you do it? Will you abandon yourself? Will you risk? Your total being on him. God is wanting to do a new thing. Are you available? Our doors open for cross-style surrender. Who will die? Who will throw themselves away? Who will abandon themselves? Will you? Our brother's singing. Our altar's open. Will you deal with it? Thank you for your kindness. What a Jesus. You may have a loved one, a friend you want to pray for. Would you come? And we just want to have a moment when we look him full in the face and just adore him, just tell him how we feel about him, just tell him how grateful we are to him, just plug in in a new way, just. Out of what we are into what he is, just crawl up into his chest cavity begin to feel the throbbing heart of what he wants out of my whimpering and whining. Into his flowing, into his purpose, into his bigness. What a privilege. Are you living there? Then <laughs> you have no problem saying, Praise the Lord. Let's do that in these moments as we love him together.
0: Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 128 for episode 128. Now, next week, we're gonna be wrapping up this series by listening to part three of the sermon series, Jesus, the Conquering Messiah. And until then, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.